0: Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello!
1: I'm
2: Alison Raskin. I am a writer, director with very dry hands. Hey, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and first thing in the morning, coffee drinker. Oh multiple baby. coffees, lots of coffees.
1: I don't drink coffee really much
2: anymore. No, you know what else I love? Diet Coke. Okay. I like caffeine, and I won't apologize. And I know people on the internet are demanding that I apologize, and I refuse.
1: Caffeine addiction is in the DSM
2: as a disorder. It is? Yep. Wow, really? Yes. And you know what? We just let people... Go out to coffee shops. Meanwhile, weed is illegal. <laughs> and welcome to High Times podcast. What if that's what we were like? Uh, I people wouldn't listen. No, I think people would. They'd be into it if we were just like a podcast that was like. And that's why the man wants you to feel this way. Although I we mean, are I'm kind saying of. That sounds like exactly what you sound like we, every that, episode. That's what I sound like yeah you're paranoid too i don't have conspiracy corner moments that's not true you have you believe in conspiracy theories that's different okay yes i do have a corner called conspiracy corner that we do do on this show but you also believe in conspiracies yeah but
1: what i believe in is real not conspiracies
2: perfect (laughs) wow you know this really paints me into a corner a conspiracy corner yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> in actuality, this is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty.
2: And high thoughts, man. Why do we park in the driveway and drive on the parkway, man? Tamika, can you fire? <laughs> <laughs> That's what the government wants us to think that the earth is round, but it's flat. You have the lowest
1: tolerance of weed of anyone I've ever met. <laughs> and you're doing this character?
2: I take one puff. I'm and like, she's guys, gone for the day. How do we know blue is the same for everyone? You know, those. It's not. People know that. It's
1: 100% not the same <laughs> for everybody.
2: That's my new character, guy who, like, says basic science things, but thinks it's, like, revolutionary. Uh, like, revolutionary. like, guys, what if, like, Dogs can see different things in different ways, man.
1: I don't know if that's true. What are you talking about? They're
2: colorblind. Okay. And they smell better than we do.
1: That's not what you said, though.
2: They're on a different frequency, man. Okay. Did we go to the moon? Who can say? Buzz Aldrin, he can say. <laughs> Uh, we have a much better episode for you than our opening. Um, <laughs> uh, this week we're going to be talking to Mickey Kendall, author of the book Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women That a Movement Forgot. And later we'll be discussing what questions should you ask a
1: potential partner right away.
2: Dire. Sounds dire.
1: You know what else is dire? My need to hit
2: this! International Questions!
1: Alexandra, Sweden.
2: Can I just say that when we've been recording this show for a long time, I just want the audience to know that sometimes we are slap happy. Is it our best work? No. But are we powering through? Yes. I gotta pee. (laughs) Like, you're really getting the sort of, like, raw id. You know what I mean?
1: I don't think that this is my id, though, because I'm not currently pursuing pleasure. If I was, I'd be (laughs) peeing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Joke. <laughs> okay. Alexandra says, how do you handle being at peace with your past self after maturing and realizing you used to act and think in ways that you disapprove of and are frustrated by now?
2: Oh, my God. Drag me.
1: Um. So she goes on to, like, give specific examples. But I honestly think that this one's better if we just kind of leave it more broad. Yeah. And because everyone has different things that they did in their past that they might regret or disapprove Uh of or frustrated by. And so how do you like come to terms with that?
2: (sighs) Okay. Let's get into a rough one for me. Okay. In a... a, Let's say, what was it? Like 2014? 2015? I was very good friends with someone. And we worked together on projects. And like my sister was was working for him. We were deeply personally and also professionally intertwined. Mm -hmm. This person through various tweets, was outed as uh, someone who had sexually assaulted people. And this is a, a thing that I, like, if you were like, what could you take back? Like, this would be the big thing I would take back. But I defended him. So, now, that is a thing that I look back on and I am frustrated, disgusted, Uh, I fully disapprove of it. Like, if it was, like, a different person and I went back and saw that person doing it, I'd be like, what the actual fuck? And I think a lot of people have things that they did in the past that were bad. This is also an extra layer because it is hurtful to other people. Mm -hmm. I can't change it. It's something that happened. I also, I'm, like, very mad at my past self constantly because it was harmful to some to someone else it was harmful to other multiple other people it was a, just a mistake like it was like very ignorant mistake and it is not something that i would do now but it's hard not to judge your past self it's hard which like in this case sometimes i'm like you should judge your past self like i did a terrible thing after years and years let's say 5 or 6 years of of maturing and and becoming different how do you reconcile what you were and that's a really tough one it's like a thing where you sometimes feel like you will always be that person like you get frozen in time and you're like how am I able to be different than the worst thing I've ever done
1: but I think that you are different like I would argue that if you don't look back at some things in your
2: life and go wow what was I thinking then you haven't grown Yeah, but it's tough because I think some people will be like, yes, I did do something in my past that hurt a lot of people on different sliding scales. And then some people are like, yeah, I, you know, was a goth and then I became like not a goth. But that we're talking about here is reconciling your past when like what you did was really bad. Yes. So what do
1: you do? I think you change. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. I think that like it's I my one of my favorite sayings is the only person you should compare yourself to is past versions of yourself. Right. So all that you can do is strive to be better in the future. And you're doing everyone a disservice by staying stuck in the past when instead you can like transform into a better person who's then actively helping the world and yeah. who yes, maybe you were like a complete bitch to your ex-boyfriend right and you behave so terribly in that relationship and you acted out all the time Mm -hmm. then you learned and now you're in a new relationship and you are a wonderful caring great partner who is it serving for you to obsess about how you acted in that past relationship
2: what's your responsibility to the boyfriend you were awful to an apology sure I
1: sometimes think apologies are, are for yourself more than for the other person. Sure. You know, because, like, maybe that person doesn't want to hear doesn't from you. Doesn't want to fucking talk to you, yeah. You know?
2: I think that sometimes an apology is reasonable. I think you just can't assume something back. So, like, if the person doesn't want to hear from you and has blocked you, then you just have to yeah. let like, it go. Yeah, and, like, just because you apologize doesn't mean someone has to forgive you. Oh, I've sent emails being like, I apologize you don't have to accept the apology mm-hmm. and you don't even have to write back. You can just delete it. You can't send it or you can't apologize or you can't, like, force someone to see that you've changed. They, they have no responsibility to you. I also think it is
1: very rare, if not impossible, to meet anybody who has not made mistakes. So I think that one of the biggest hindrances we can do is be like, well, I'm a bad person because I did this thing. So now I'm just a bad person forever. Right. You know, in a way, that is a cop out. That's you not having to actually work on yourself.
2: Yes. So that was the big thing for me is I spent the subsequent years really changing, really working on myself, really reflecting, like really doing a bunch of counter work to what happened I'm never going to be able to, like, make it up to everybody, and that's super hard. And it's tough, right? So here's the thing. You know that you've changed. This is a big problem is reconciling your past self with your future self because you know that you've changed. And the people around you now might be like, oh, my God, that's so unfathomable to me that you would have ever been that other person. Mm -hmm. But then people who are around during that time, they might find it hard to believe or be skeptical of, like, the new you. And so... You can only control yourself. You can't control the perspective and the way that everyone is viewing you. And that's something that's really hard for me is, like, I want the people now to see me in a certain way and not find out about my past. And I want the people from the past to see me now and be like, oh, my God, she's amazing. She's changed so much. And, like, you can't have that. (laughs) You can only control yourself.
1: Well, I think that if you still know someone from your past and you've changed a lot and they refuse to recognize that change, that's on them, not on you. That's what I'm saying. You can't control it. Then potentially that's someone you don't necessarily need in your life anymore if they refuse to see who you've grown into. But they're not
2: obligated to. Then you just go your separate ways. Like, they're not obligated to see the new you.
1: But I, I guess I just feel like a lot of what you're talking about is, like, I think wasted emotion if you've already made the changes. Like if you've It's already- just hard when
2: people see you as your past. Like if you were an alcoholic and you got sober mm-hmm. and people still see you as, as the alcoholic,
1: it's right. hard. But this is about how do you not see yourself as – how do you not get mad at yourself every single day for having had a drinking problem that was out of control? So it's like, you know, but I think that what you have to do is instead of judging your past behavior, applaud the work that you've done to move past it. You know, like it's really hard to change and it's really hard to become someone you're proud of being. And so if anything, you should just be like, wow, that's amazing how far I came versus, wow, I started in a ditch. So therefore I should go back to the ditch.
2: Because no one is born perfect (laughs) and like but it is tough when you know it's something like addiction or it's something like a racist or an anti-feminist view or something where like you hurt people and you're like a lot of that is
1: environmental so a lot of stuff that you believe early on in your life is very based on where you grew up who your parents are who you're surrounded by you know nobody like gets all the information and then is like, I decide to be racist. It's like, <laughs> do you know, like, they're, I don't forgive someone who's 50 years old and is racist. But if you are 18, you go to college and for the first time you interact with people that are different than you and you realize, oh my God, those thoughts I had were bad and now I realize that everyone is equal and wonderful, then, like, that's fantastic. Yeah. Like, do not end up beating yourself up about these thoughts that, like, honestly, you didn't have control of them being implanted into your brain.
2: Yes, the only way for me to be at peace with my past, which I still definitely struggle with and I am—I cannot apologize enough for what I did and like I think about that as like a huge mistake and a huge past self that like I can't even begin to like believe is me. You have to be working towards being better. You can't just go, like what Allison said, you can't just go, oh, well, I did this thing in the past, like I'm not gonna change. Like, you know, you have to be actively working working on being better. And and that's for everyone. Like, even if you just were like, oh, I used to, I don't know, be a person who liked this type of music and now I like this other type of music. Like, you're going to change again and you're going to change again and you, you're you constantly going to be changing and you have to, like, make sure that, that the ways in which you're constantly changing feel good and are good and are ways that help people and are positive. You can only be trying to make yourself better. That's the only thing you have control over is if you're making yourself better or you're making yourself worse, you know?
1: Yeah. And like, if you've made yourself better, then be kind to yourself about that. Yeah. It does not help anyone to beat yourself up over something you've already recognized as bad and have like moved away from. It just doesn't. Yeah. If you someone who, like, keeps doing the exact same thing, right, right, that's different. Right. But if this is something that's truly in your past, you got to just let it go.
2: I do have moments where I do think about that, and I'm so disappointed in myself, and it's, like, really hard to get over, and I can't believe that, that that was me. And I think, like, my dad feels that way about being an addict and, like, is like, I can't believe that was me. And, like, I know how hard that is for people. And when people are angry about it, I'm like, I get it. Like with friends of mine who like had bad beliefs when they were younger, they're like, it's hard to think anybody doesn't like you. So you're like, oh my God, this person that from the past that I fucking hate, who is me, other people must have fucking hated them. And it's like, you can't go to each person's house and be like, knock, knock, I'm different now.
1: Yeah, but you You would be doing that, like you said, to serve yourself, not to help those people. That's very true. So you got to just do what's right for you and take care of yourself and strive to be better and then like... And do
2: the work to be better. And do the work to be
1: better. And that's it.
2: And try to make up for it in some ways, you
1: know? Yeah, like pay it forward a little bit. Pay it
2: forward. Be an
1: even better person than maybe comes naturally to you.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. All you can do is not do it again. Exactly. Ugh. It is hard, though. It is really hard. This is another one that, like, I don't have an answer to.
1: Well, I do, so we're, we're all <laughs> set. <laughs> if you want to submit your international question, send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com.
2: Up next, we've got a juicy interview with our highly esteemed guest, author Mickey Kendall. Stick around.
0: Just
1: back to just between us it's time for
2: the juiciest most scandalous controversial segment known to all of podcasting tough questions today our guest is author and just all-around cool person mickey kendall hello hi nice to be on oh of course we're huge fans okay so can you tell us uh, about your book hood feminism
3: so hood feminism is it's an asshole's critique of the modern feminist movement, right? <laughs> of mainstream feminism. We're just going to put it there. I say it in the book. It's the podcast. I can use these big, big girl words. Um, and basically, it's me talking about the impact of race and class, and also feminism's failure to take those things into account. Mm-hmm. You know, homophobia, transphobia, all of these things into account when they're tackling issues and how that then fails women who are affected by these issues, even if they are not middle class white women. Basically everyone in feminism that's not a middle or upper class white woman, we, we'd like some more things from feminism. It keeps asking for stuff. It needs to give back more.
2: Yes. So can you talk about that a little bit? What kind of stuff is it asking for and what kind of stuff should it give back?
3: So there's always this call uh, for solidarity, support, votes from marginalized communities, right? Mm-hmm. Specifically from the marginalized communities. But when the conversation is about police brutality, Uh, The Indian Child Welfare Act, if you're in the U.S., when it comes to time showing up for schools and health care that is not reproductive, all of these things, feminism tends to fall down, especially like, you know, things that explicitly impact poor people like food stamps. Mm -hmm. You see this not just in the U.S. with our programs. You're seeing it in the U.K. with programs around social housing and welfare and all of that. Um, You're seeing it in other places. Where, yes, it's great to make sure everyone has a chance to be a CEO or, you know, whatever. But we should maybe make sure everyone has a chance to be educated and safe and fed and housed before we start talking about who gets to be rich. Mm -hmm.
1: So sort of like needing to start more at the base level, like we got to like fix it from the bottom up instead of trying to fix it from the top down.
3: Yeah, especially because right now, as as we're seeing play out with many corporations, Fixing from the top down, a lot of these CEOs and and leaders in various fields that are not paying their employees or laying them off, some of them are women. Mm -hmm. Right.
2: So this is the type of thing that has become interesting because as feminism got more popular in the mainstream in the last, let's say, like 10 years— it is this thing of like corporate feminism, like this idea uh-huh. that like it's sort of this class solidarity and, um, you know, there was like these $70 T-shirts that say like, we should all be feminists. And like, can you break down like what are some actual issues? Like, is it more focusing on race and class and less focusing on corporate sort of like we got to get girl bosses in the in the boardroom?
3: Well, and so here's my thing. You know, the girl boss rhetoric sounds great. What are the conditions for the employees where that girl boss is running things, mm. right? Are her are these employees being paid a living wage? Do they have health care? Do they have paid time off? Mm-hmm. What do those maternity leave policies look like? We saw this with Yahoo, and I have forgotten the Yahoo CEO's name mm-hmm. now. Where she had had a policy where her kid could come to her office, she had an entire office set up, but we didn't really want to hand out that same perk or anything like that same perk, including paid parental leave to our employees. So like girl boss stuff, CEO stuff, that's all great. But are your employees being paid a living wage? What do their hours look like? What do their working conditions look like? If they have health insurance, right, through their employer, is it good health insurance? Because I know we tend to think of employer health insurance as sort of the holy grail. But as anyone who has ever worked at a job that technically has benefits, but in reality, this is the worst program ever chosen by anyone mm-hmm. in the history of ever. On the one hand, you want to congratulate the diabolical genius that sold them this, this pile of fakery, because clearly this is the best scam. On the other hand, as the person who now is trying to take what amounts to a policy that covers two sticks of chewing gum and some string to the ER, you, you've been paying for it, and it's useless, right? We see, we've seen some improvements on that front, but it's not enough to say, well, my employees have benefits. What benefits? Mm-hmm. What What do those things look like? And extra question, what's your dress code like, right? Because if your employees can't have natural hair, for instance, can't have locks, all of these things, you're self-selecting out employees from certain populations. Yay, girl boss. We just saw this happen with the wing. Yes. Very exciting girl boss moment there where basically we found out that somebody got their hours reduced because she didn't greet one of the founders by name.
2: (laughs) And like, what?
3: Listen, that entire article, Amanda Hess, found 26 people willing to talk to her and shout out. But as I read it, I started to think, and no one started screaming. No one quit. No one threw anything. Y'all are amazing. Because the point at which I hear someone, you know, screaming at me because I'm not, I've been working all these hours, but they don't feel they're getting enough perks. The hood in me is just too close to the surface for (laughs) How dare you be here? And and there's a story of someone throwing dirty dishes at an employee who was using the perks that are supposed to be associated with her job, because how dare you have downtime when I don't want to see these dishes?
2: Yeah. And that's sort of what's useless, is this idea of climbing to the top and achieving the top as a woman without... uh, And then just acting like an asshole man. (laughs) Yeah, leaving people behind, basically. It's like this entitlement...
3: Right, and it's it's the idea that somehow feminism is supposed to get you equal to an oppressor.
2: Exactly. Right,
3: As opposed to it being an end to oppression.
2: Exactly, mm. and I think that's been completely misconstrued, and I think that's been so twisted. Like, this tweet that I love that's like, feminism is supposed to be like, hey— Uh, Maybe we should work to get rid of the incarceral state that keeps, you know, the prison industrial complex keeping like women of color primarily uh, arrested for minor crimes. And then like it was like white feminism, more female guards. And that's actually 100
3: percent accurate. I've seen people. (laughs) It's a fascinating thing. I've seen people say that the best solution to police brutality would be more women cops. And I was like, so that's not actually better. Right. Because we have female cops now, and we've seen them both commit acts of brutality. But also, if it's an inherently flawed structure, putting more people in it won't make it better.
1: Right. Right. you got to redo the whole structure.
3: Right.
2: Yeah. So can you break down, like, what you found in your writing, like, with regards to stuff like that? Like, what are some things that maybe our listeners who are, like, a lot of them are young— would would think like oh the buck stops here for feminism versus like what you've actually written about and found
3: so okay we're gonna go with police for a second because i always find this argument fascinating when people say but who are you gonna call if you have a problem right Mm
0: -hmm.
3: and one of the things which i sort of knew because i'm from chicago and our cops are best known for screwing up right like we've paid out like a billion dollars in the last 20 years in police brutality and misconduct lawsuits but the solve rate for crimes in a place like Chicago, and I'm going to use our numbers because I know them best, for murder is 24%. If you commit a murder in Chicago, there is a 70-plus percent chance you will get away with it. Yeah.
1: I actually thought so, you were going to say something lower. The solve rates is, like, shockingly low across the country. But so wait, like- here's the kicker.
3: Here's the kicker. That 24% includes the fact that some, possibly as much as half of those cases, because That's where the the kicker came in. Fraud was committed and someone was framed because after all of that, we then have had cops. We had the John Birch tortures case, which if you look it up, our cops were torturing people to make them confess to crimes they didn't commit. But since then, we've had other cops arrested and there's a series of I have a great clearance rate. My numbers are good to get my promotion because I framed 27 people or I framed 52 people. So we don't actually, with them fudging the numbers, they still only brought it up to 27%, <laughs> right? And then let's, let's say, let's, let's be generous and say that the that, that 70, however many murders a year that they are claiming they solve, half are actually legitimately the person who did it. Mm-hmm. That still means that they're really at a solve rate of something like 13% and a misconduct rate, a direct misconduct rate via framing and all of this of something like 50%, right? Like, you got yeah. a 50-50 chance that the person they caught. And I'm not sure the number is that high, right? right. Because, again, they're only solving 20-some-odd percent of murders.
2: And I would imagine that a lot of those murders are intimate partner violence against women,
3: well, and also, remember here, you can be charged with murder if someone dies during the commission of a crime, even if the cop is the one that shot them.
1: Really? Yes. I did not know that.
3: Yes. So then we look at policing again, and we say, well, it protects you. Who, who is it protecting? Yeah. Right? Like, we've got all of this misconduct, which includes sexual violence. It includes, and we've, we've seen the videos of people being beaten and all of these things. Then the question becomes, we've built this structure, and we tell women, call it for help. Call it for safety.
1: Mm
3: -hmm. Where's the safety? If you might get framed, you might get killed. We've seen several times women who go to the police for help, then being assaulted by an officer. Mm -hmm. So we've built this whole structure, and we said, go there, and the structure doesn't protect you. It might protect someone occasionally, right? Like, it's like rolling the dice. Right. But TV shows say that you get a cop who listens and who cares and who goes the extra mile. Mm -hmm. Reality stats say you're lucky if you don't get hurt. So what do we do? How do we attempt to solve this? I mean, one of my things is that we could stop making officers immune to prosecution for all practical purposes. And I know, I know occasionally one is prosecuted, Mm -hmm. But for all practical purposes, police unions have built themselves a structure in their contract where they don't have to be, let's say if an officer is in a drunk driving accident, he doesn't get tested right away. We just had this with our, our chief of police. Side note for anyone at home thinking, Jesus, Chicago's cops are the worst. Possibly. Yes. <laughs> but NYPD in LA and St. Louis and Detroit are not better. Yeah. And neither is Ferguson. And yeah. So let's say you've been drinking, you're in an accident and you're the chief chief of police. And this is based on reality. You are found passed out behind the wheel at a stop sign. Mm. And originally, the story is that you were on blood pressure medication, a new blood pressure medication. That story persists for a while until people come forward and admit that they saw you in multiple places getting drunk. Oh, boy. And you're in a position where you have a driver. And do you know what your punishment is? You retire with slightly less than a full pension. But your pension is is, almost—is six figures a year still.
2: Wow. I mean, there needs to be more
1: of an internal— I think that there needs to be an external
3: investigation. Oh, Like, the
1: fact that the police investigate each other is bullshit. Right. Police
3: investigate each other, and then the prosecutors that the police work with every day are expected to prosecute them.
1: Right. That's bananas. That needs to—they need to have, like, their own system of, like, their own prosecutors, their own investigators. Right. Like— it they it's it's not normal for any company to like just get to like decide itself,
2: you know. <laughs> like and so, the problem there becomes like okay, so let's say there's this thing of, and it's mostly I think common in in white women of calling the police if if you know you feel unsafe or whatever. And I've seen I've seen uh some solutions in, in cities where they have more community like engagement or more um, like less defaulting to calling the cops. Right. Is that sort of the mm-hmm. other the other hand in this? Yes.
3: The other hand in this is that, you know, don't call the cops because your neighbor's music is too loud. Right.
2: Right. Don't
3: we need we need a solution that is not call the police for everything.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
3: As an example, um, months ago, my husband and I, while we were doing laundry ran into a guy who we realized had been on a missing persons reports, the process of trying to get someone to care enough, right? There was a police number to call. Um, I was hesitant to call it because I didn't want this guy to get hurt. And in the end it didn't matter because by the time I called the number trying to find relatives and whatever, it becomes clear. No one is coming, right? He's not committing a crime. I'm saying this is a missing person who was in an endangered position because of his mental health. That's what all the flyers say. Right. He's sitting in front of me. How can I get him help? I called 311. I called all these numbers. I ended up going on Facebook and messaging his sister via Facebook.
2: And being like, right? he's, he's at the laundromat?
3: Yes, quite. I am, I am looking at him. He is right here in front of me. So, what happened? They found him. They, they came, a family member came, a cousin, and all of that. But the kicker was that after all of that, when the family was saying, you know, he's been found, blah, 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 the police took credit. Really? And the family was like, we could have just never involved you at all and just covered his favorite places with flyers, which is apparently what they wanted to do. Yeah. Because that was the part that worked involving the police in this whole process didn't work. So if you can avoid calling the cops, you know, yes, I understand you're told to call the police for a missing persons report. And I mean, I guess in theory, but maybe we could have a system where it's not people with guns Mm -hmm. and people with a vested interest. In not having to solve that case involved, right? I'm moving away from the window where someone's car alarm is going off. I am not going to go outside and smash that guy's car as the window. <laughs> see, look at me. I've grown. Gross. It's been going off forever. But no, so this is the thing. And it's the most peculiar logic in my head anyway. It wasn't that the cops ever got involved in a helpful way, but it gave them a case to solve. So now they were interested. Right. So if we're going to create a system, maybe we need a number you call where people who go who are mental health professionals, whose only job is to show up,
1: Mm -hmm.
3: show up. Right. Maybe we need something that you call, you know, because I know we have emergency hotlines for after sexual assault and domestic violence and those kinds of things. And we absolutely need those numbers. But maybe we need that same kind of model without guns, because that's really important, without a reason to resort to violence for a lot more issues.
2: I think I didn't realize, like, what do you do if there's a big party? What do you do? Like, the only thing that you're ever given is, like, call the police. But, like, I, you know, I have a neighbor whose dog barks 24-7. And it, to me, I live in a, a, a Latinx neighborhood. And so I'm, like, if I was less informed, I would be, like, oh, I'm going to call the police and report this dog. But I also know that there's a high chance that these people maybe uh, don't need a police interaction. <sighs> And so I'm Great. like, you know what you can do is, like, I know this seems crazy, but you could, like, go over there and knock and be like, hey, does your dog need something? Or, like, <laughs> what What can we do to, you know, mitigate this or whatever? And you might get yelled at. Yeah, they might just yell at you. But, like, what are the police going to do? Like, it, it, it's like, you know, I think we have such a hands-off approach to humanity where we're just like, I don't know, let these these other people handle it versus, like, Neighborly interaction.
3: Well, and this is the thing because when I um had a neighbor who had a dog that barked out the window all the time and I had said something about it at one point And my neighbor was like, The dog gets upset because people don't wave to it and it likes people waving to it. Right? Oh I, I thought this was like the craziest thing, but I tried it. And do you know that if you wave at the dog, like the dog stopped barking? So we <laughs> literally had a little sign that said, Just wave at me and I'll and I'll calm down. Yeah. That she put in her window. What
1: mistakes do you see, like, well-intentioned white feminists making over and over again?
3: Um, So one of them is assuming that people haven't tried the thing. And you can insert Mm. the thing, whatever the thing is, right? You've got this great idea for how to stop um, problems at the local school. And your great idea is to call the board, let's say. Mm-hmm. These people called the board. Now, if you want to call, go with them when they they go to a board meeting and open your mouth and say the exact same thing they've been saying and use that privilege for good. Great, but don't say, "Well, protests aren't necessary." When you could just call this number, call that number. Those things already happened. Mm-hmm. They're protesting because they did the thing that they were supposed to do on paper and realized they were getting nowhere. Now, if you want to throw money at the fund for people who are striking. Or throw money at, you know, more school supplies, that kind of stuff, and also write letters. Great. Follow the lead of the people who are already there dealing with the problem. Mm-hmm. But don't decide that you, new person to the problem, know best because you have more privilege. You might have gotten better results elsewhere because people listen to you, but folks are not in any neighborhood unaware that they're supposed to be able to talk to the principal or the teacher. What has happened is that they've talked to those people. It didn't work. Right. So now they're trying something else.
2: Yeah, I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding of, of like, what needs to be done or, like, why people are behaving a certain way. If you come from a different economic class, you kind of are like, well, when I talk to this person, it works. And it's like, yeah, it does, doesn't it?
3: Mm-hmm. And this is the thing because I know um, when I've talked to people now, this is a, an example. I, I did The Daily Show, right? Yeah. So I was on the stage with Trevor Noah, all of that. You know, when I talk to people now, I get very different answers than I used to get. Really? If they follow me on TV. Well, because I did a documentary and I, I've done a bunch of other stuff. I've done a bunch of local stuff where my face is on the, on the side of something. Uh-huh. And it's amazing what, oh, media connection mm-hmm. translates to mm-hmm. in people's heads. Right. Right? I, I don't even have to threaten. I don't have to say anything. It's just send just, that just clip different. of you on The Daily Show.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and not everyone has the ability to do that. It's so, it must be so strange to compare now to, to before, you know?
3: It, it is the wildest thing because I didn't think The Daily Show was going to have this impact, right? Like, I had no idea. You don't know when you're doing this thing what the thing is going to be. Yeah. But emails to teachers that were kind of answered, stopping in the grocery store, all of these little minor things, people sort of... Oh, because they associate TV with a certain thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Status. Yes, and that status gives you privilege, right? right. And I, don't, I didn't suddenly migrate financially or a bunch of other things, but because in their heads I am at a different level now, mm-hmm. has nothing to do with what I've actually done, suddenly their behavior is different. And it's sort of jarring to step back and think about what privilege does that you never really have to see. Because honestly, if I hadn't experienced the old bin, I probably would think so-and-so is so nice. She's so helpful.
2: Right. Or you're like, this is how life works. Right. If you're just gentle and kind and you work up the corporate ladder, I don't understand what these women of color are worried about.
3: Right. And you you can tell yourself that over and over at every step, right? Yeah. At every promotion. And it can start in in grammar school well, you're the kid that the teacher makes much of because your grades are good and you work really hard. And it never quite comes up that your grades are good in part because you've had access to all of this information. You've got a computer in your home. You've got parents with educations, degrees, whatever. Mm-hmm. They pay for extra lessons, tutors. So you've never had to worry about your next meal, the power staying on. Your home isn't overcrowded. You can study in peace. Mm-hmm. Right, You maybe even have a set schedule and a set set of things that are always there. So your little sense of stability is never rocked. So you're doing the best because you have the best. You're always warm. You're always fed. Your your schedule is is routine. Mom and dad read to you. You've got all the books, the computers, Mm -hmm. whatever. You did great in school. School was so easy, right? Your first job, well, yeah. So it was a friend of your mom's, but what's the big deal? Mm -hmm. Except- your friend of your mom's owned a business, not yes. a friend of your mom's was a dishwasher. Different sets of friends, right? All through college, same thing. This professor, you end up at your parents' alma mater. Your dad's frat brother knows the president of so and so, whatever, whatever the story is, right? Because privilege passes down.
0: Mm-hmm. So
3: your parents' privilege, even if it's not enough to keep you exactly at the same income level they are, right? Let's say you screw up and you get a, a record and, and all of these things. If you're white with a record, your chances are better than if you're black with a college degree. So with no criminal history and a college degree, the color of your skin still makes things more difficult. So if you're the black girl who did everything right but doesn't have any connections, you're not getting as far as someone with connections and who's white.
2: I always find it amusing when it's like a white celebrity and they are like, funny story. I was arrested when I was a teenager, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm like, I love that that's a funny story for you. Whereas like for anyone else, that would be life altering forever. When white people are arrested, it's very quirky.
3: It's funny, not funny. A guy that I went to high school with, he used to make pipe bombs for the heck of it. Cool.
1: This is not where I saw this going, but okay. (laughs) Oh, right. It's a white guy. It's a white guy, right? Yeah, duh.
3: So to give you an example, there was a black guy in our school who was dating one of the white girls. And for a series of bizarre events, he kept getting in trouble for things that weren't things he had done wrong, but were things she had done. Mm. Right? So she tries to jump on him at a game and hits him and he pushes her away. And they're ready to press charges against him. Mm. Things like that. Like this relationship is not great. He's trying to break it off. She does not want it to be broken off to the point where his mother finally has to get like a restraining order and there's a bunch of things going on and she's still trying to get people to put notes in his locker and blah, blah, blah. And their response to her is to try to get her help, right? Mm-hmm. But their response to him at first was to send him to juvie. Oh my now, fortunately, God. mom could afford an attorney and a bunch of other things. There were witnesses there there were other black kids there. But meanwhile, let's go back to the white guy who made pipe bombs because I don't know, that's what he did. He made pipe bombs. He called in bombs. Sometimes he blew up the pipe bombs. He never blew up the school, but he blew up the pipe bombs. Dan joined the Marines.
2: (laughs) You truly love to see it.
3: Okay, wow. We didn't even attempt to get him help. We just said, oh, he should be in the military.
1: (laughs) So I think people hear the term intersectional feminism all the time, but can you define it?
3: First of all, there's no such thing as intersectional feminism. There there's intersectionality <laughs> and there's feminism and you can certainly use an intersectional approach to your feminism. Uh-huh. Tell us
2: more. Tell us more.
3: So intersectionality is rooted in the idea of the ways that gender and race can impact your experience in the criminal justice system. Professor Kimberly Crenshaw coins the term to describe a phenomenon that was already happening, right?
0: Mm-hmm. So you
3: have and side note, if you erase black women from your intersectional feminism, quote unquote, then you've already screwed up. Intersectionality is not, let me go find three white examples because it's explicitly about race and gender. Thank you. Sorry, I just had to put that there. You can certainly broaden it to other things like disability, trans, um, or non-binary identity, things like that. But if you're not centering it in marginalized people and explicitly in marginalized people who experience oppression, additional oppression because of their skin color, you've kind of missed the point of the term. And the thing is, it's not that it's only about Black people, but we have this weird thing where we decide that the people at the center of a thing have to be pushed to the edge so we can use it, especially if they're Black. And Black women come up with the term, or a Black woman comes up with the term, other Black women do work around the term, and now white feminism has sort of discovered it, and I'm not really clear what's happening now. (laughs) It's being stuck on everything like girl boss. Like, I don't know where we're going here. Because I'm seeing people say, I'm an intersectional feminist, and then they start talking. And A, they don't seem to know what the word originally meant. And B, I'm not sure what they're talking about in their own lens, because they've removed race.
1: They'll say things
3: like it's not about race.
1: To me, that term means that you have to acknowledge race. That, like, you can't ignore that factor and that it's so different for women of color than it is for White women
2: and specifically black women.
3: Well, and this, and the reason I specifically say black women is because anti blackness, which is a separate thing, um, sometimes even inside communities of color, um, means that whatever we're talking about in almost all scenarios, your numbers are coming in terms of oppressive numbers, your numbers are coming in part from black women's experiences. And I don't just mean cis black women, I also mean trans black women. But like, say we're talking about rape statistics, that includes. Trans sex workers of color. That specifically includes black trans sex workers. If we're talking about um, foster care numbers or abortion or whatever, whatever numbers we're talking, right? Even when we say, well, women make 70 cents to the white man's dollar or 79 cents, whatever that number is now, white women do. Black women are somewhere in the 60s. Latina women, I think, are in the 50s. I believe, and I'm not sure about this, indigenous women end up somewhere around there. The only group competing really with white men is Asian women and only because of tech kind of a thing. So only some Asian women. And so all of these things sort of stack up together to be, when you're talking about intersectionality, you have to pull back enough to see where these numbers are coming from, where these issues are coming from. Because if you don't, then your problem is, you'll say, I'm an intersectional feminist and I've considered everything. And you'll also say like women of color. But even women of color aren't all experiencing the same thing. Different groups experience different things. And if you're not thinking about how the policy you want to write, the law you want to write, whatever you're doing will impact people coming from different places, then you have a problem. Because now things are not coming out the way you need it to, right? Where you told yourself that what you're going to do is write something about food stamps, let's say, right? And you're going to base the income numbers off what white women are making, because white women are the ones who are the largest group benefiting from the food stamp program. But if your income numbers are set for what they're making and, and then you plan everything around them, is that enough to help people who make less than them?
2: I mean, I think the word intersectional has become a catch-all I don't think people realize that it originated from black women. And I also think, like, a lot of feminists have a hard time. Like, they'll be like, well, I'm being inclusive, like women of color. And it's like, it's okay to say what you mean. You can say black women. Right. Right. Side note, black
3: is not a pejorative. I know and, people are weird. And if you're going to talk about intersectionality in the sense of how you want to apply it to what you're thinking of, I am not saying you have to do some arcane calculus. Like, so like right now, we're looking at this potential stimulus check, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they're like $1,200. And cool, if you make four grand a month, you probably have some savings. And a month with 1200 extra dollars per person, you'll be kind of okay. You'll be a little behind, but you won't really be. But if you only make, let's say you make 1600 a month, you don't have any savings. Mm-hmm. Right, or if you do, it's certainly not enough to make up for this drastic drop in income. So that's why I say, when we're talking about intersectional and intersectional feminism, I want people to stop and think: What am I backing, and how does it harm other people? Right? If if we're talking about schools, I don't want my kid's school to change the boundaries. I don't want that many more kids. Cool, but is the school in the next district? Are they overcrowded? And is it really about? you don't want more kids in your school or is it really that you don't want those kids in your school? Right. Because if you really want to help and you don't want more people in your school, you'd be over there advocating for them to get a bigger building or another school in their district.
2: Well, I think a lot of feminism is about gains and like what you can take from it. And I think there's a problem wherein people don't realize that part of it is divesting or sacrificing. So the idea is like, let me go up the corporate ladder. Let me, uh, what can I like, from being feminist versus like this idea of you might actually need to lose out on some stuff. You might actually need to create not equality, but equity. Um, and I think people don't want to make themselves smaller for the benefit of other people. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah. Well, and the other thing is that we tend to think of giving up stuff as like this really hard, difficult thing.
2: Yeah. And the assumption that this thing was mine mm-hmm. when sometimes it wasn't yours. <laughs> it mm-hmm. was never yours. It's this take stepping back and being like, I am not entitled to this. And my view of this job, this, this money, this, whatever, is that, well, it is mine. And it's like, well, was it actually yours? Or do you just feel as though it is yours?
3: Well, and that, that's the other thing, right? Because so all of those lawsuits that were being pushed, um, I think her name was Abigail Miller. Oh, maybe? Yeah.
2: About the uh, affirmative action. I lost out. I'm white, and I lost out on a spot at Stanford because I am white. But the assumption there is that that spot was yours to begin with.
3: Well, and this was the thing. So when that whole case unfolds, I think it was UT maybe, but whatever, her grades finally come out. And I, as a kid who got pushed through the magnet school AP class mill, had to sit here for 15 minutes, right, because I had a kid going through it trying to figure out how she ever thought that she was qualified for the spot she swore was hers because her adjusted GPA was a 3.6 six would so be average. Right. Not bad. Certainly you can go to college with that, but in a state that does top 10%, there's no way you ever thought you were in the top 10% of your graduating class. Right. Right. Not
1: as,
3: not as a B plus student. Right. right. And no extracurriculars, blah, blah, blah. And basically their answer in the lawsuit was she would not have gotten in regardless of who else we let in. She never met the qualifications. Right. She went to a different school. They told her she didn't meet the qualifications. She had a good time at the other school apparently and graduated, but in her head, she had every right to the specific experience she had dreamed up, regardless of whether or not she actually met the qualifications standards. And she blamed it on those brown people.
2: Even if you do have the exact same qualifications, it's still not your spot. <laughs> no. It, You're it, still competing
3: with right. a bunch of other people with, right. the, with the necessary qualifications, right? I bring her up because it was just odd to me that she fixated on brown people as the answer and not that B average.
2: Right. Mm-hmm.
3: But let's you, say she had A's and all of that she still might have been competing against someone who had straight A's and a, started a charity, founded a business. Like college mm-hmm. admissions is this whole laundry list of things, right? And so you just didn't get in. right? How did no one ever tell her you're not going to get your dream necessarily? Right. Have a backup plan. That's sort of the thing with privilege.
1: Well, you touched on this a bit on The Daily Show in terms of like – what you can focus on in terms of, like, changing the world is very different when you, like, have a house over your head and you have food and you have some form of stability versus women who, like, are just struggling to survive. And how, like, right. their goals of, of what what feminism could accomplish is probably pretty different.
3: And this is the thing because, sure, I guess you can go and argue for your right to get into college. I joined the Army to pay for college. Mm-hmm. I'm already at the other end of this, right? But I was able to even think about college because I didn't have a child. I didn't have all of these things yet. Right.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And I had a stable ish situation. I mean, it wasn't as stable as it could have been. Sure. But it could be resolved by me joining the army and leaving and moving out. I think people sometimes think that if you are coming from a hard situation that you have grown Phoenix wings and soared out and blah, blah, blah. No, what actually happens is that your community makes sure that some of your needs are being met, right? I'm not different than the next girl like me. I just had better resources.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm
3: not exceptional. None of the people who make it out of the hood are necessarily exceptional, except in the sense that they got what they needed. So if we want people to do all of this great, some of this work and to be girl bosses and all of these things, that means what we have to be willing to do is give them everything that everybody else has, mm-hmm. right?
2: Um, I have a, a one last thing before we do hypotheticals. So we talked about feminism on this show, and then we got a reader email because it was, it was basically someone saying, my roommate doesn't identify as a feminist. How do I get her to identify as a feminist? And then Allison and I sort of talked about that, and then we received a reader email that was actually very poignant from a black woman saying, I think that you guys don't understand the aversion to feminism because for me as a black woman, I don't identify as a feminist because what what has feminism ever done for me? Um, And so uh, part of the reason that it's amazing to have you on the show is because this girl definitely had a point. So, like, what would you say to someone like that?
3: So I would say this. I'm not sure why we're hung up on the term. I mean, yes, reclaim it if you want to. That's one of my things. I refuse to give it up. but while we're having this, you should identify as a whatever. I'm, I'm more concerned with the work that her roommate is doing. A, right? Is your roommate doing things that undermine other women? Or is your roommate going about her life? And you're just really stuck on this thing, right? Is your roommate volunteering and blah, blah, blah. Like There's all of this stuff. And I don't need to know the details of her roommate's life to be like, you could tend your own knitting right now as opposed to trying to tend hers. And then on top of that, When you bring race and things into it and we have womanism and, you know, I'm I'm bringing in this concept of hood feminism, everybody is going to have to reckon with whether or not they feel like they're included with the movement that has claimed to represent them Mm -hmm. in their own way, in their own time. And sometimes, let's really be honest here, the feminism that we're used to seeing talks about a lot of women more than it talks to them or listens to them. Right. Right. We become projects to be resolved. Or, and this is an awkward thing that's happening right now, as I'm seeing people really struggle with being in the house with their own children. Um, <laughs> you start to figure out that for a lot of girl boss women, their their girl boss lifestyle is possible because someone else is coming in to do all of those tasks, Right, right? Like maybe they've got this great feminist partner, but more likely they've outsourced that labor to someone. Is your feminist success reliant on the the underpaid labor of a woman of color, you're maybe not so feminist. So spend less time obsessing over what people call themselves and more time fixing the problem. So they might want to identify with you because otherwise I could tell people, Oh, we should all be feminists. And that's not a dig at Chimamanda. It's just sure we should be, but what does that mean? And what does that do for people and to people who may be oppressed by certain parts of building that feminist future.
2: Absolutely. That was so. That was really great. <laughs> uh, now that you
1: have blown our minds, would you like to play hypotheticals?
2: <laughs> sure.
1: Okay, great. So this is a game show where you and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask as many questions as you want before telling me what you would do in these situations, and then I just arbitrarily decide if I like your answer. Okay. So, yeah. So very few rules. Uh. And um. I absolutely abuse my power. Great.
3: <laughs> Good to know this is unfair from the gate. All yes, right, you should know go. it's
1: a very unfair game. Great. <laughs> well, S- rigged against you and Gabby. Yeah. You know what?
2: Say la vous. We're used to it.
1: <laughs> okay. So our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Okay. Your husband of 30 years gets a huge promotion at work, and when you are out celebrating that night, he drunkenly admits that he took credit for some of his female employees' ideas to make him look better to his boss. He sobs while he tells you this and says he will quit his job if you want him to. Would you stay with this cheater? Also, he once grabbed your friend's butt at a barbecue but thought it was her husband's.
3: Let's start with this. Um, why was he grabbing anyone's butt? As just, a goof, go there
1: as just like a goof, okay. him, him and his friend grab each other's butts.
3: All right. Then why is the solution for him to quit his job and not for him to help all of these people get credit and or promotions to make up for what he did?
1: Because this is just what, what came to mind to him.
3: Okay. So you
1: can so, su- you can suggest that.
3: So I'm going to tell him that if he wants to keep me, he needs to make amends to all of these people by helping them get their promotions and all of that. Because why would I go through a divorce and give up all of this new money when I could be a lovely widow? Oh! oh! So your answer is murder. My answer for most things is murder. <laughs>
2: well, you know, that's come up a lot, actually, on this show where the women we interview are like, kill him. <laughs> Just kill him. <'em." laughs> Okay, I'm going to say that I think he needs to make a big blog post confessing to everything. Okay. I think he needs to, like, go to his bosses and tell them the actual women who gave those ideas, Um, and then I will leave him. (laughs) Oh, alive or dead? I'll leave him alive, but I'll make a big blog post being like I have divested from my relationship. <laughs> it is a conscious uncoupling.
1: Got it. And then you get a then you get interviewed on the Today Show.
2: Oh my god. Yeah, I write like a, a big article about why you should break up with your partner who steals ideas from women at his job. What's the right answer?
1: A murder. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, our next game. Are you a terrible parent? You catch your 14-year-old son writing disrespectful comments about women online. So you post a salacious photo of yourself eating a sloppy joe topless while holding your toddler daughter in order to get trolls to comment mean things about you. You then print out these comments along with the photos and hang them in your son's room. He never writes a disrespectful comment again, but he has nightmares of you in that photo for seven years. Are you a terrible parent?
3: Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. You know what you can do instead of what? putting your daughter through humiliation and yourself through a sloppy chill? Like, Jesus. <laughs> you you could take away the internet. You, you could, you know, talk to your kid. He could get in trouble. There could be grounding, all manner of things. But why would you, first of all, why would you put the baby in the picture for these patrols? The also, never feed the trolls.
1: Because people love to comment about moms and how, how to be a mom. So you, you knew that that would really get you a lot of comments.
3: But then she has to live with this baby picture of her being out there forever. This seems like it punishes her more than it punishes him.
2: You know, you're making some really good points. Often the like, answer to are you a terrible parent is just like, god, maybe you should have talked to your kid. You know, <laughs> right? like rather than this like, elaborate scheme, why don't you have a conversation with your child?
3: Like talk to them. And I mean like here's the thing, right? You want to make you want him to pay for what he's done, you can make him do any manner of short, right? Oh yeah, he can be outside painting the outside of a shelter. We can be collecting donations for a domestic violence center. We can be looking at the impact. We can, we can learn about the, the criminal impact increasingly for this kind of behavior online. We can do all of these things. All of them involve talking to your child.
2: So you guys are a gnaw on the photo shoot. People hate talking yeah. to their kids. But also, I'm going to say no. And I'm curious about Mickey's sticking point of the sloppy Joe, but I'm going to let that slide. <laughs> okay, our final,
1: final game. Would you lie or tell the truth? Your 16-year-old daughter asks to go on birth control, so you go with her to get a prescription. When you get home, your husband asks where you guys were. Do you
2: lie or tell the truth? It's a Thursday afternoon.
3: It depends on whether or not she wants him to know.
2: That's true. Does she want him to know or does she not care? She has explicitly said, don't tell dad. Oh, then I would
3: lie. I'm not even going to lie. I'm just going to say, oh, we had some appointments.
2: Oh, yeah. We had a a doctor's appointment. He'll he'll say about what? And I'll say girl stuff. Yeah, I could say I took her to the gyno. I don't have to say what happened at the gyno. So you're lying to your husband. No, I'm very big into the trust between a parent and a child. I think once that is broken, Mm -hmm. it's fucking broken. So I think that's more important than anything.
3: Well, and my thing is that unless my kid is doing something dangerous to them, there are a lot of things about my sons I don't know that their dad knows. And we are fine with that (laughs) because there are things they don't want mom to know. And our deal has always been, there are things I know that he doesn't know. You have to talk to an adult. It does not have to be one of your parents. It can be your sibling. It can be your cousin. There is a whole world of trust adults in their life. But if you have a problem, you have to go to an adult for help. You get to pick your adult. Your adult yeah. doesn't necessarily have to talk to us unless there's an emergency where we need to step in. But I have this really bizarre belief that kids' bodies belong to the kid and not to their parents.
2: Yes! <clears throat> applause.
1: Wow. I love that. Right. Yes! okay so you are you're too reasonable for this
3: game but <laughs> no, no no what it is is that i have an almost 21 year old and i have a soon to be 14 year old so everything you've laid out here we've already gone through <laughs>
2: that's true you're an, you're a veteran in many ways
1: <laughs> thank you so much for joining us where can people find out more about you in your book
3: so I have mickeykindle.com. I'm on Twitter at Karnithia, K-A-R-N-Y-T-H-I-A. I have an Instagram account. And also buy my books, wherever books are sold. I was going to say, say what the book is called. Okay, so I have two books. I have one that came out in November, Amazon's Abolitionists and Activists, A Graphic History of Women's Fight for Their Rights, for your 12 and Up sex. And then I have HUD Feminism, which just came out February 25th, which is really more for the adults um, to talk about race, class, gender Disability, all of these things And feminism, and how feminism is not actually addressing Its problems and could be doing better
2: Woo! Thank um, you so much Thank you so much, thank we you. really
3: appreciate it Thank you This is a lot of fun, I'd do this one again
2: Oh, oh my god, <laughs> what
1: a good review I'm, I'm blushing <laughs> Now we gotta Talk about questions you should ask Your potential partner right away Stick around, we'll be right back
2: Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for Topics. X, 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 X. X. I made it cute. I made it sensual. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> there is nothing sensual about this show. I'm sorry. Nor will there ever be anything sensual about this show. Wow. And that's the Allison Raskin guarantee. That's the Alison Raskin. If you're looking for sensual, you came in the wrong place. I'll, I'm sensual, but I'll just be sensual alone over here. I'm the Eye of the beholder. Okay. It truly is, though. <laughs> so
1: this week, I decided, arbitrarily as always, that the topic would be, what questions should you ask a potential partner right away? Here's mine.
2: Political affiliation. Very true. Holy. Ding, 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 ding. I can't believe how often on The Bachelor that it, they come out of The Bachelor having chosen each other. And then it's like. One of them was a Republican. Like, (laughs) why is that not question numero uno?
1: I think they do talk about it. It's just off. They don't show it on air. But then
2: why would you say
0: what?
1: Because obviously, I know you're talking about, you're talking about Becca. And obviously, it didn't matter to her that he was a Republican. But like, because she she realized she could just shape him into whatever she wanted him to be. So when people like it didn't, it wasn't a priority for her. Here's my
2: number one question. Pro-choice. Pro choice. That's huge.
1: Also, how politically involved are you? Are you like a registered Democrat, but you don't vote? Oh, do you vote? That's do you, you vote? Huge one. That's important. For me, I also would want to say, what are you looking for? Yeah, you were huge on that. Say more about that. Thank you. Um, I just think it's a waste of everybody's time to start dating someone without like discussing like what people's expectations are and like end goals. Because if, like, one person just wants to casually date and the other person wants a relationship,
2: let's find that out date one instead of, like, three months in. Yeah, totally. Or, like, what what is your idea of the perfect situation? Do you want to just, like, date and be together and, like, live together and you don't really care about marriage? Do you really care about marriage? You know, like, what are we looking for in terms of life? But then also, like, I guess specifically, like, what do you see with me? Sometimes it's like, yeah, we're ju- we like both want to get married eventually, but like not to each other. <laughs> well, I think that's
1: a little tough right away because they yeah, don't you know don't you, yet. you don't
2: know. Yeah.
1: Um, but if someone is like adamantly wants something that's different than you, it's is so much easier to cut ties right
2: away. Yeah. Um, um, are you a person who likes to go out? What are your hobbies? Are you an introvert? Are you Yeah, per- like what is your um Social life-like. Yeah. yeah like, like when our- you were dating that guy who loved cocaine. Uh-huh. So that's like an <laughs> incompatibility. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I love to be in bed. And he's like, I love to be awake till three in the morning doing cocaine. Right. So
1: I found out he did cocaine on our first date, but then he underplayed how often he did cocaine.
2: Yeah. So that's something
1: that you you got to be so honest. be honest about your cocaine yeah. usage. <laughs> Right up front, I think it's like, hello, hello. I've done cocaine, blank amount of times. Yeah, I but or
2: I plan on doing it once a week, three yeah, times a week. I plan on always doing cocaine. And look, man, if you're both coke people, live your dreams. But mm-hmm. but it's also a little bit unethical the way that it's brought into the United States. The point is, <laughs> is that like you gotta have compatible lifestyles. Yes, absolutely. How religious are you? How religious are you? That's important.
1: I think. Um, what is your living situation? Ugh. yeah like are they living with roommates that they like that they hate are they living alone are they living with their
2: parents are they remember the boy and he shared a room with a roommate oh yeah the boy (laughs) he was so young yeah that was a fundamental incompatibility but see i went into that knowing that the incompatibility being he was a child he wasn't a child he was young when he was like i live in the same room with a roommate i was like I don't really care where you live, bud. (laughs) Not As long as you don't live with me. Yeah. Hit the bricks.
1: I think a really important question is if they like their job.
2: Go on. Say more about that.
1: Because people that hate their job are pissy (laughs) like oh it sucks to hate your job and it can be like a real drain on a relationship and like it obviously depends on the person's perspective of that job but if someone like every single day goes and does something that they hate for like 10 hours a day like that's gonna seep into other
2: stuff yeah when they come home they're miserable right That's very interesting. I would never have thought of that. Well, that's why I'm here, baby. But I do like, I want to know, like, what are you passionate about?
1: Right, but also, like, their passion might be music, and then they're, like, uh, doing, like, payroll at a company, you know, and,
2: like... But are they able to do music? Are they able to to do their passion?
1: Or is it, are they able to be okay with that reality? Right. Or every single day, do they wake up mad at the world that that's what's happening?
2: I think that dovetails into are they someone who can make their own happiness? Like Mm -hmm. can they – are they working towards I'm going to eventually quit my job and do music full time? Like is this someone who can like take their destiny and their future into their own hands or are they going to rely on you for that? Mm -hmm. And you can kind of – you don't have to ask that outright, but you can kind of try to suss that out too because you don't want to become like the only good thing in someone's life. That is too much pressure. Yeah, I like
1: to know right away if they have friends. Oh, interesting. I think it's very telling if someone doesn't really have
2: friends. We well, just look at their tagged photos. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> One of the things I loved about Jake is that like he had like really, really strong lifelong friendships. And I was like, Oh, that's a sign of someone who's like capable of maintaining friendships and relationships.
2: And someone who is who if something goes wrong, they're gonna have a support system exactly. that isn't just you. Exactly. I like what's your relationship with your family. Mm -hmm. It's also good just to know
1: the basic structure of their family so that you then don't say anything offensive. Mm -hmm. So, like, let's find out if your mom's alive before I, like, make a joke about your mom.
2: Like, you know, like, I think it can
1: be helpful to, like, know those basics right away.
2: Yeah. And that it's not going to necessarily be the same as yours. Mm -hmm. Like, don't go in assuming, right? Like, oh, everyone has a mom and a dad, which, like, no. Right. Also, sometimes it's like I'm not close with my family, but I have A biological family, but I have a chosen family that Mm -hmm. I'm super close to. And this person is basically my sister and blah, blah, blah. Like, who's in their life? Right. Who's in their life? Who's around? Who's in their life? Absolutely. What's the situation? I mean, it all comes down to, like, compatibility. Like, you don't have to be the same at all. But, like, are we starting from a place of where we're going to, like, be compatible and understand each other? Mm
0: Mm-hmm.
2: One guy I dated, I saw him do a stand-up bit about a threesome. And I Mm -hmm. was like, Yes like (laughs) compatible right um i think like sometimes you can suss that out a little bit oh monogamy versus polyamory Mm -hmm. like are you monogamous are you non-monogamous like i think there's a lot of that kind of stuff that could be an issue but they like dogs be honest if you hate dogs just say yeah we don't need you seven years in being like i never liked your dog oh my god Nothing would break me more. That's what I'm saying. Also, like, our dogs are the best ones, so it's, like, kind of fucked up.
1: I think so many people fall in love, but they don't think about what their life with that person will be like day to day. It's very different than just, like, being in love. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Zemika, do you want to come on in and share your thoughts? <laughs> What's the first question you'd ask a potential partner?
0: Actually, I was thinking about this. I Instead of asking a question, like a specific directed question, I'm mostly listening to figure out what someone's priorities are. Mm, Interesting. Uh, Especially like if they talk about the same people often, what they're spending most of their time thinking about, what they're spending most of their time doing, it kind of shows how they prefer to live their life. Mm -hmm. And then I'm sort of gauging whether or not I can kind of be compatible with that or see myself vibing well with that type of person. Mm -hmm. It's just really telling how people choose to spend their time. And what you were saying about their feelings towards work. You mm-hmm. know you guys wear multiple hats. You have like lots of different creative interests. Did you find it difficult like finding partners who were also like really independent and uh creative and busy on their own? Yes. Hugely.
2: A lot of times I found them relying on me or me needing to push them to be the best at their work or me needing to be like, why don't you do this or whatever? And I also have to Take into account that I do that too much. I've enjoyed dating
1: someone who's not in the industry. And um, that that the chaos that is the instability of what we do is only for half of us. (laughs) So it's not two people in a super unstable environment. That he's got a steady job. Yeah, I think
0: that's been really great. Yeah. What do you rate the episode? This episode was interesting because... I felt like Mickey had a lot of great thoughts during hypotheticals, but I can't think of like a good rating based off of that. (laughs) Just like 10 out of 10
2: hypotheticals. Or like 12 out of 11 talk to your kids. Oh my God. Just talk to your child. Um, I rate it five out of five forgiving past mistakes. Take that to heart, Gamps. I know it's hard. I'm not really close to achieving it, but I'll work on it. (laughs) What did we learn? I learned so much from Mickey. Oh my god. I mean, mostly I learned that intersectionality is its own thing, which I'm embarrassed that I didn't know. Mhm. I had no idea. I'm so glad we got to address that on this show cuz I think you and I have have a lot of knowledge, but it's limited mm-hmm. by our experiences, and so I'm I'm really happy to have someone else talk to our fans. <laughs>
1: I don't feel like I have a lot of knowledge on race stuff at all, because how could I? I can read about it, and I can talk about it, like, I can ask questions, mm-hmm. but, like, I always feel like I have no fucking idea.
2: Like, oh, well, that's why we interview people. Right. That's our job, right? To, like, amplify other voices, which I feel that we do. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
1: Uh, thank you so much to Mickey Kendall for being on the show Just Between Us is hosted
2: by me, Allison Raskin And me, Gabby Dunn Our engineer is Brendan Burns, he also composed our killer theme music Our producer is Tamika Weatherspoon And our supervising producer is Josephine Martirana Our executive producer is Chris Bannon Just Between Us is a production of Stitcher Talk I didn't, to your kids Yeah, I didn't mean to self be self-congratulatory Yeah, you but. really were, you <laughs> laid it on
1: thick.
0: <laughs>